Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Family Business Podcast. The reason this is a special episode is because it is done in collaboration with the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. I am joined by three fantastic guests and we talk about a book that they have released that is titled Wealth 3.0, The Future of Family Wealth Advising. And we'll get much more into the detail of the book uh, in the actual episode. But first, I just wanted to give you a bit of an overview of the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. I am a member. I am part of their advisory board. And they are a non-profit think tank and learning exchange. Their mission is to elevate the wealth management industry to a new standard so that families and their advisors can foster prosperous and meaningful relationships from one generation to the next. That is obviously a cause that I support wholeheartedly. And as part of that, I am very pleased to announce that the Ultra High Net Worth Institute will be releasing their own podcast later on this year. So please keep an eye out for that. I will obviously promote it via LinkedIn and uh, my mailing list. So if you're not on the mailing list already, please head over to fanbizpodcast.com. Sign up to the newsletter there and you'll hear when the new Ultra High Net Worth Institute podcast is released. As for this podcast, there will be more episodes coming later in this year. I've been exceptionally busy over the summer and uh, most of this year actually with a lot of uh, very exciting client work and the work that I'm doing on the quest for legitimacy uh, and obviously you will have seen the Mindful Family Business podcast too. So as you can hear there's lots going on, lots of very exciting things. Really excited to bring you this episode. It's an interview with Jim Grubman, Dennis Jaffe and Kristin Keffler. Regular listeners of the podcast will know those guests from previous episodes and they are fantastic whenever they appear on the show. Um, so to have the three of them is a real treat. If you want to find out more information about the Ultra High Net Worth Institute, best thing to do is to go to their website. It is uhnwinstitute.com. Org. There will be links in the show notes and you can find out all about who is involved, what their mission and uh, what they are committed to, to doing on that website. But um, as I say, keep your ears and eyes open for the Ultra High Net Worth Institute podcast that's coming later this year. But for now, please enjoy this episode of the Family Business Podcast. Well, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by three fantastic guests for this podcast episode. They are the co-authors of this book, which is called Wealth 3.0, and we will get into the detail of what Wealth 3.0 is very shortly. But to start off with, um, I'd like to introduce you to Jim Grubman, Dennis Jaffe, and Kristin Keffler and um, ask them each to introduce themselves and then we can delve into the um, detail of the book. So, Jim, over to you. Yeah, very good. It's great to be here, Russ, and to do this. Uh, we uh, have done podcasts with you before and we really look forward to this conversation. I'm Jim Grubman. I'm a family wealth psychologist and consultant and have worked with uh, significant families and family enterprises and uh, their advisors, including family offices, for 25 or more years, um, part of the Ultra High Net Worth Institute, and um, uh, somebody who's interested in the professional field. 
I'm Dennis Jaffe. Uh, by background, I'm a sociologist, but I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist and family therapist, and I have a management degree, and I've worked in um, uh, business development. So that's what qualifies me to work with family enterprises. And I've been uh, connected with the Ultra High Net Worth Institute since it started. I'm a board member. Uh, I've worked with Jim uh, on the domains, and I'm the coordinator of the uh, governance uh, domain. And um, I've been active in um, developing the program and the uh, uh, thought leadership uh, in the Institute. And I'm uh, Kristen Keffler, and I've, I've been in this field for about 20 years, which is sort of surprising because I am so young. Um, but I did start, when I started working in this field, it was an outgrowth of my own personal story, and a, and a lot of people have heard that, that narrative. Um, but I was 29 when I started working as a coach with the rising generation in um, affluent and enterprising families. And of course, we didn't even call them rising gen back then. Um, we called them next gen. Um, and I, so my, my growth through this field has been one that's kind of been inside out, one working with in the reverse hierarchy of rising gen and eventually figuring out that I really needed to build out uh, a knowledge and ability to work with family systems and then with whole family enterprise systems. Um, and I have a, a bit of a myriad scholastic background. I, I have a dual degree in public health and business, so an MBA, MPH, um, and then I have a master's degree, a master's of applied positive psychology from Penn. So sort of bring both the systems work from the public health and the business um, work, and then the positive psych work, which is really sort of the, the deep heart work for me. Um, and with the Older High Net Worth Institute, I'm a faculty member, which I'm delighted to, to get to contribute to such a great organization. Yeah, fantastic. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to be talking about the book that you have co-authored. It actually feels as if it's so much more than a book. Obviously, the, the topic is um, a, a paradigm shift that I think we're going to be uh, looking at. But you've captured that within this book. And I guess a good place to start is to just give the audience an overview of what is and how did we get to Wealth 3.0? Um, well, Russ, the origin of it was a keynote address I did for the Purposeful Planning Institute's rendezvous exactly four years ago in the summer of 2019, in which um, I was asked to provide a little bit of historical context, um, looking back on where the field had been and looking ahead to where it might be going and trying to find some organizing principles for how to convey to the audience uh, the journey that the field has taken and where it might go. I came up with the concept that in what we might imagine as wealth 1.0 pre-1980 plus or minus, that uh, it was a time where wealth was largely about dynastic wealth, wasn't a lot written about psychology of wealth, and the industry was mostly just focused on maintaining and protecting the money. And then we moved into what I called Wealth 2.0 from around the 1980s through the present, in which there was a tremendous development of a lot of important uh, concepts and uh, skills and activities that we now associate with family wealth advising 
and family business advising. Uh, and that's important in, in what we're going to talk about. And uh, it's been a great 40 years of a lot of development. But part of what I suggested was the idea that there were some things about Wealth 2.0 that uh, were not as helpful and that had grown up around some of the good stuff that we needed to take another look at and possibly uh, trim in what we were thinking about and doing and that we were moving into the phase or the era potentially of wealth 3.0 um, starting in the last several years and that I identified some uh, threads of using positive psychology to be more strengths-based, to drop away some of the fear and pessimism that had grown up during Wealth 2.0, and to generally, uh, in a way, it was a bit of a call to arms uh, and a manifesto saying we needed to really organize ourselves as a field much more strongly, get a lot more practitioners in the field who were well-trained, to be scalable in training and organization and to really fully step into the rigor and strength of what the field needed to be. So that, that essentially then is what we took a deep dive in the book and have fleshed out to a much greater extent. Fantastic. And part of what you talk about and lay out within the book is the model visually has four uh, interrelated elements. Could you run us through perhaps some of the detail behind those four interrelated elements? Uh, sure. Let me start with what I talked about primarily in the keynote, which is the practice element, the, the how for frontline advisors and the things in a, in a combination of what we need to be doing less of and what we need to add in and be doing more of. Um, and in the practice, it, we need to be doing less of the uh, warning people about the dangers of wealth, uh, validating fears about what wealth will do to families, uh, talking about the bad statistics on how wealth fails across generations, um, sayings like shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, and describing how we needed to use the benefit of new techniques that advisors could adapt for financial advising um, in, in its broadest sense to really uh, move into a new era that is more strengths-based and positive in the practice components. Now I'll turn it over to Kristen and, and she and Dennis can then talk further about uh, organization education training, and then we can bring it back to issues of research. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you, as, as Jim has laid out there, there are these four interrelated components that we, we talk about in the book. The practice component is really all about the intersection of the advisor with the, with the client. And, and then the other components really are sort of more back office in many ways. Like how do we as a field need to, what's the vision for how we can organize ourselves? How do we actually create powerful, useful research to help drive our activities? Um, and how do we get a deep bench of practitioners trained in an effective way? So I, I'll, I'll share a little bit about the component of professional organization. You know, one of the things that's interesting about our field is that it's really a discipline of disciplines. 
right? It's like there we all come from our home discipline. And, and I would say that in the time that I've been doing this work, which has been about 20 years now, there's been incredible forward movement in at least having cross communication between those disciplines. And I feel like there's a lot more awareness about the need for having some be having some level of conversantness. That's not quite a word, but being conversant on the other disciplines. Um, but I think that what what we're really calling for is that at, we need to move to actually having some level of professional organization as a field that has home disciplines but comes together in a singular field of family wealth advising um, and that it's not just a collection of, of activities, but that we actually have cohesion in how we support um, client families and how we work together to do so with the client at the center of the, of the system. Um, and there's one of the things we talk about in the book or we share in the book is that there's, um, there's kind of four main um, elements that as a profession organizes itself that are necessary to, to really create a profession. And so I want to just name those um, because I think it's helpful to, to give us a path for like what might be necessary as we think about creating a professional organization of the field of family wealth advising. Um, so those four, those four elements are education. So like really a, a common core curriculum that is consistent um, and that all professions that are in this um, sort of master profession would have some level of consistent um, core education um, experience. So having having some level of like in the field experience that is required to be able to do this work with families because we know it's complex and we know that um, that it requires both having skill in your home domain, but also the advanced practice skills that allow you to be able to move very effectively into conversation, inviting wisdom back from families and from individuals and that that ability to actually have a high level of facilitation and communication skill um, is, is part built on training, but in huge part in the field work of being in the room and watching how these things unfold. And you, there's only so much of that you can get by reading a case study, right? Those are helpful tools, but they don't actually create the visceral experience for an advisor to be effective in that space. Um, so experience and having some amount of standardized experience of in the field training, as well as um, classroom training for that to, to be skilled in this. Um, examination. So actually having standards that we can say, yeah, here are the things that that an advisor working in this space has the ability to do, and we can measure their ability to do that, right? And that's, that, that's uh, other fields have done this. So it's, while it can feel like a tall order, I think, to, for us to think about how do we organize ourselves around it, that like, what do we need to know and how would we um, create a, a standard so that we could measure against it? Other fields have done it. And I think we just need to look at the fields that have moved in this direction and we can learn from them. Um, and finally, having a common code of ethics. So again, it's like we each in each of our home domains, we likely have professional codes of ethics that drive our home domain work. But what is our common code of ethics as a, a master domain, as a um, sort of the, the discipline of disciplines? And how do we actually create something that can hold and contain us all in all of our disciplines?
Excellent. And Dennis, you were going to talk about um, education and, and training. Right. Education and training. So um, we're, we're um, as Kristen said, we're a discipline of disciplines. So people come in to this work with a what we call a, pr- a profession of origin. They're a lawyer. They're an accountant. They're a financial advisor. They're a banker. Um, there's some thing. And so they've learned a, a content area and a kind of a, a, an expert um, but now they're supposed to be working with the broader issues of the families. What do the families need? What's the f- future of their wealth? How do they work together? And these are a different set of skills than the expert skills that they came in with. So traditionally, and one of the challenges that, we, that, that a field faces in its development is it starts out as kind of a guild. And the guild is, um, is uh, you know, people serve apprenticeships and they follow people around and they kind of pick up things, but there isn't a, 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 a um, clearly defined training program. And that's the way the field has developed. And uh, what we're finding is, is that, that, that there's a limited pipeline um, because it's, uh, that's the only way that you can get into it is through uh, apprenticeship after you've developed your professional skills. And so it's hard to develop these, um, these, these um, general competencies, for example, how to run a family meeting how to help families deal with differences and communicate effectively, how to help a family create a, a roadmap and a governance structure. Those are things that, that transcend the individual discipline. So what we're asking for is that there needs to be training programs, and they're not content-type training programs where you just give people some lectures and they pick up some things and, and that's their skills. They have to be hands-on, as, as Kristen was saying, so there needs to be interactive uh, trainings, and they're starting to happen in workshops. They're um, slowly happening. The, um, uh, for example, the Family Firm Institute has a um, wealth, uh, family wealth advising certificate in addition to the family business certificate. So it's starting to happen, um, but there needs to be um, an academic basis for this. So there needs to be trainings. There needs to be an entry process. There needs to be a way to develop um, these skills, and it's a, a field that you develop these skills after you've developed a professional skill in um, a, a starting um, a profession. And I think one of the important things about what Dennis said and, and Kristen is the issue of scale. Uh, ironically, during Wealth 2.0, uh, a lot of progress was made, made and a lot of families became aware that they may need help or could avail themselves of help in um, working with within the family members and developing things. But at this point, the demand for practitioners has far exceeded, exceeded the supply. And so uh, there's not enough people in the field that apprenticeship type training, a small guild, very, you know, uh, a customized, uh, very expensive type of services is limited the number of people who really uh, can help families and clients, particularly not just at the ultra high net worth level, but down through high net worth. Um, and so we need good professional organization, education and training to begin to create, as Dennis said, a pipeline of uh, practitioners that are sufficient to meet the need that uh, was created during the prior era. And then the fourth piece that we uh, emphasize and have added in 
is back to the issue of research. During Wealth 2.0, there has been research, but there's two major drawbacks to what we have for research in the field. One is most of the research is really about family business, not necessarily family wealth. And it comes out of the business schools. Uh, There are things that we could talk about, about the fact that family business consulting has overshadowed family wealth consulting. And so we know a lot more about enterprise-related issues, much less about wealth and families. The second is that a lot of the research that we count on and, and often refer to was old research without very good research design. The findings were taken out of context and expanded on. Um, and so we actually don't have a lot of the important research that a true professional field needs in order to be able to have a good foundation for what we tell clients. And so um, the book uh, has a significant chapter on some of the possibilities for research areas that have never been done. Research that has much better research design so that the conclusions can be trusted. The uh, eliminating bias and stereotyping about wealth and families that some of the research in the past has had. Looking at longitudinal research that follows families over time, not just for some simplistic measure of success or failure, does the money last, but looking at the possibly uh, different outcomes that families may have in different ways. And so with professional organization, good education and training, credentialing, and good solid research, um, we really would have the kind of field that would support the frontline practitioner in working with clients. Yeah, and just linking that back to something you mentioned in kind of the the outset of how we got to um, Wealth 3.0, that the research side of things and some of the statistics that have come from that research have formed the basis of some of the fear-based selling, shall we say, that, that can happen around, particularly when it comes to issues of family wealth and preserving it and using fear as a catalyst for, for action. What I understand from Wealth Free Point is one of the sort of calls to action is to, to stop doing that. It is to focus on the opportunities and possibilities rather than just utilizing um, fear. Could, could you speak a, a little bit more about that side of things? Well, let, let me let me kind of jump jump in um, on this and say um, it's the initial uh, spirit of 2.0 was was positive and was about what is your wealth for? What is the non-financial meaning of wealth? How can we become a great family? And, and what's happened in, in some of the practice and what, what we're um, really concerned about is that um, practitioners and, and, um, and families have responded to the anxiety that most family members feel about what's going to happen to my children, what's going to happen to my wealth, what do we do, um, uh, how do we um, let go of control and, and move on to the next generation. These are anxious um, transitions. All transitions are actually anxious. And so what's happened is the response has been to kind of help families solve problems by creating more control, by um, limiting um, people's choice to the next generation, by saying, um, uh, you know, the best thing that we can do to preserve 
we're all it's all about preserving the money and therefore if we um, you know keep you away from it um, we're doing you uh, we're, we're being effective and so a lot of families um, were limited um, by um, you know kind of structures and processes that come out of a, a negative a, a limiting uh, way of attending uh, to wealth and dealing with wealth transitions and the anxieties that family members feel that they pass on to their advisors who then rush into kind of limited solutions and, and, and fixing things rather than having families step back and, um, and uh, really reflect. So um, we feel that, 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 that the negativity is a significant problem. It's not a little minor uh, bit of noise, but a significant problem that is um, uh, starting families on a path where they actually don't um, open things up and they don't explore possibilities and they don't look at the positive things that they're doing and look at the ways that they've been successful and build upon them. And, and, um, and, and we want the families to kind of step back and basically start to uh, um, look at what, what's possible and, and, and what, what they're doing well and, um, and what they, what they want to do, what kind of a vision they have for the future of their wealth, for the best use and the best um, uh, you know, future that they can create for their family, not to uh, um, stop people from spending money and, and, and do limited things to kind of uh, increase wealth without really dealing with the well-being of the family. Well, one thing I, I, I absolutely want to underscore everything that Dennis just said, and I think that there's also a... Um, like in some ways, I want to just let us all off the hook for, for having bought the story, right? Like I think that there's a lot of like anxiety I, I have felt in myself. I feel in my colleagues like, wow, I've been selling that line for a long time. Like, does that make me a fool or does that make me somehow right, wrong or bad? And I, I feel like that as humans, we have a negativity bias. So it's easy to lean towards that. And, you know, Danny Kahneman talks about that some of the, you know, he's, he's a sort of a core thought leader around the human biases that we, that we bring to the table. And one of, one of the problems that he points out is that we are willing to ignore facts when a story hangs together. When it's, there's a cohesive story, it's like, you know, you can sort of just be like, oh yeah, it's based on research, but not even really know if that re the found, you know, the foundation of that research. So so I want to let us off the hook a little bit and let everybody exhale. Like we have all, all three of us sitting here, probably you two, Russ, have had in our PowerPoint some version of some negatively biased um, storyline that we've all bought into. And, um, and I think that, you know, we can also look at what has happened in other fields and recognize that we are not alone. Like I, you can look at psychology and the, and the shift from a um, sort of the, what we would call the traditional psychology, which is really looking at deficits and mental disorders. And then the, the huge launch forward with um, the amount of research in positive psychology and more of a strengths-based asset-focused domain of psychology in the late, um, the late 90s and through the 2000s. The same has happened with medicine, right? Like really having a very deep focus just on pathology and like what what is wrong and then stepping back and now we have a look towards the whole patient and integrative medicine and so 
I guess I'll, I'll get off my soapbox, but I feel like there, I just want to like pull like a bigger lens around this and and just remind everyone we're not flogging the industry and we're not asking and we're asking people not to flog themselves. We're all on this journey together and we're just part of an evolution. Yeah, fantastic point. Um, Jim, was there anything you wanted to, to add on that side? I, uh, again, I think it's important that we convey the balance that we're trying to do, which is um, you know, those early research studies that did not have great research design, the findings were very circumscribed to certain situations, and then it got blown out of proportion or carried forward, maybe out of context. You know, we told people, well, you know, only 13% of family businesses survive through the third generation. Um, 70% of wealth transfers fail, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And that it was just time to go back and say, wait a minute, what are we telling our clients? What are we believing ourselves? What is the foundation for that? And it was just time to re-examine that, which is part of the maturation of a field. And so as we are doing that and saying, that was really good to get the field started. But at this point, we need to really be on a much stronger footing for what we tell ourselves and what we tell our clients, and that it's time that we have new research, uh, new awareness, new techniques that fit together in a really coherent way to carry forward into the next era of uh, helping families with wealth. And one of the, we mentioned in the, the introduction um, that we're all part of the Ultra High Net Worth Institute, and one of the many fantastic resources that's available um, through the Institute is the 10 domains of family wealth. And we've spoken a little bit in, in each of the sort of areas around domains of, of expertise and, and how that can operate. But for, for those that are unfamiliar with the 10 domains model, could, could you explain that and uh, importantly, T tell us why it captures the essence of what we're talking about with World 3.0. Well, um, I'll take that one. Um, uh, in the beginning, when the Institute was just starting out, we had a major question, which is, you know, what are we going to be talking to families about and how are we going to be helping them? And the Institute went through a very thought-provoking process of what are the needs that families have when you have significant wealth. Not what are the services that firms can provide. This was actually a clean sheet set of designs of looking at independent of the service delivery side and of what the firm can do, what are the family's needs and, and issues that no matter who they're getting help from, these are needs that over the course of the lifespan of the family, are important. And so we distilled it into uh, the 10 domains of family wealth, which is nine content domains, looking at things like financial management, legal issues, philanthropy, uh, risk and insurance management, uh, but also looking at the family capital domains, uh, what the family needs in things like governance and decision-making, leadership and transition planning, learning, development uh, for all members of the family, family dynamics, health and well-being. And those nine content domains are served by a core domain that permeates all of them, which is the family advisory relationships 
domain. And those 10 domains um, as a model have really helped organize um, what are the needs of the family. Families are using it as an assessment tool to look at where do they have strengths, where do they have gaps, where do they need to have priorities, but also relevant to Wealth 3.0 is, is being, beginning to be used as a curriculum. As Dennis talked about, uh, the idea of uh, you may have a domain of origin, but really for the field in education and training, you need to have uh, in the modern world more awareness of and some familiarity with the activities of the other domains because of a major issue that we need to talk about, which is integrated services, collaboration and integration. And the 10 domains model really has pulled forward the uh, importance of, um, and as you know, Russ, the Institute is uh, working very hard on trying to understand, help define, and help recommend uh, practices regarding integrated services. And I think that what's, what's important about that is that when the field started, <clears throat> the idea of interdisciplinary service was, okay, we'll have a psychologist work with the family, we'll get a risk management thing, we'll have a lawyer, do an we'll have an estate planner do it. And it was a very kind of a fragmented um, way of service delivery where, where each thing would be discrete. And what we see in the domains, and even in the, as one of the domain chairs, we, I work, for example, I'm in the governance domain, but I can't work, uh, do my uh, think about things without being with the family dynamics and the leadership group. And um, so the idea that integrated service is not um, picking one from each, from column A and column B and column C, but really working together um, to provide a seamless service. And that, that's a little bit more than just um, adding, the, you know, one and one to make two. It's really um, uh, a, a different kind of model. And uh, we, we were just starting to um, really flesh out what that means in the, the different practices, the multifamily offices, the um, financial institutions that are serving families are really all starting to figure out um, what that is, and um, uh, let alone, you know, being able to teach and um, and define clearly um, what they're doing. You know, during Wealth 2.0 was the radically new idea that people like psychologists, uh, governance experts, and whatever, in fact, should be part of family wealth consulting and advising. Um, but I, actually, I think we can hear from Kristen who is embedded as a chief learning officer in a multifamily office, how we've really advanced quite a bit and how the activities of uh, somebody who knows family dynamics and governance, for example, um, is woven throughout all of the work that the MFO does uh, alongside relationship managers and all that. Kristen, you can, you can speak to that quite well. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in the throes of, of it in a really exciting way that, um, you know, one of the things that I see as a shift, and I didn't even realize until I was in the midst of um, moving into this role as chief learning officer that, that I actually had pretty strong opinions about what it would mean for an organization like an MFO to really adopt 
um, a focus on the human capital, the family capital of a family, right alongside and in, in at least equal standing with their financial capital. Um, and as I've been in this role now for 18 months um, with the Johnson Financial Group here in Denver, here's a couple of things I would say that I think are, are like key indicators that there is genuine movement at foot. But it's note that that there are real places where it's moving from bolt on idea of like, you know, sort of pizza service delivery of family meetings, like we'll show up and we'll make you feel good and then we'll leave and you'll go back to your financial conversations. Um, but that there's real change afoot. And that is that one, um, that there is such a thing as a chief learning officer role and that for the firms like mine who are really taking this seriously, it is genuine, genuinely a strategic role in the C-suite. It's not a nice title that is just in, in charge of like the family dynamics work over here, but it's actually, I'm a part of the conversations of how the firm is allocating resources to support this work within families, right? So it is like, it is genuinely a strategic role. And I think some of the other key indicators that I'm seeing are things like the conversations we have about the firm CRM, like, how should like we should build out a human capital tab? What should be on that? What is the information we should be gathering from families that are key data points that then advisors can can know about that the um, human capital team can know about? Um, and and so like those are just two key examples where I feel like there is a shift that's illustrating a movement from. Um, from the time, you know, from the days when that Jim alluded to, where I was like, no, you don't bring in a family psychologist. Like those people are voodoo doctors. Like they're going <laughs> to create chaos in a family if you do that to now this idea of like, yeah, we, we, and I'm speaking with my Johnson financial group hat on, like we want to attract the kinds of families to our firm who want to do this work. Like that feels like a good fit. And so then we can offer core offerings, but also have like additional work that clients can engage in. But it's all part of like the the strategic offering we give to clients. And I and that to me is like a very different model than bolt on family dynamics meeting and family meeting services. Great example. And I, I think um, that's where the interface of Wealth 3.0 and the 10 domains really is clear, which is the idea of beginning to integrate and create a trusted team, not just single trusted advisors or siloed services. Let's refer the family for family dynamics and they can do the family meetings. That's not our business. Our job is the money. Um, we're really moving in a new era. And part of what the book talks about is how education, training, research, practice, and organization need to be beefed up in order to prepare the field and move it forward to do that. Mm. And one of the um, principles you talk about that I think is aligned to that as well is the principle of positive discovery, which it might be a new term to, to some people who, are, who aren't familiar with it. So could you explain firstly what it is and why you feel it's important to, to focus on that as a, a principle well one of the things and, and I and then I'll in, I invite Jim and Dennis to expand on on this because I think it is such a powerful process and a, a powerful first step for us to be thinking about as practitioners like how do we actually get our our hands wet in this work right how do we roll up our sleeves and do it and um, and so the idea around the positive discovery process is, 
um, for people who are familiar with um, with uh, techniques like motivational interviewing and modalities like the appreciative inquiry, which is an organizational development model, um, they'll, they'll recognize components of that in the positive discovery process. And so we want to be, first of all, really clear that we're not trying to just sort of um, hijack those models and make them ours. What, we, what we've tried to do is take what, what we were finding is that when we were using that language in our field, it felt jargony. To people, it felt like jargon, and it felt like that you know wasn't uh, accessible. And so, what we wanted to do was take the best of those models, which is really about um, one creating, uh, opening up a sense of possibility through the, a, an intentional discovery process, and then highlighting the capacities and strengths already present to move towards that possibility, and to do it in a very conversational discovery focused way. And so the positive discovery process is, um, is our version of how can we, how could we take these, um, these other models and create an integrative model that is really has a strong application with, uh, within our field that we felt like practitioners like us could easily adopt and feel skilled at starting to use. And so it, it's a method that, um, that is intended to, to support that. I think in many ways what Kristen's referring to is it's very important and, and part of the theme of the book is what you pay attention to, including what you ask about, determines some of what you're going to find. And so we're trying to illuminate for advisors that the discovery process, which is a normal, necessary part of all uh, interviewing and uh, in the relationship, you need to be careful of how you're doing that discovery process. Are you asking things like, well, let's begin with what keeps you up at night to, um, you know, pointing out, uh, you know, I see that you're really worried about your grandchildren being entitled. Uh, what are your thoughts about what you can do to prevent that? That a lot of the focus has been on the negative and the fears and that uh, if you pay attention to and ask about, the ways that skills are already being developed, um, the the lack of evidence for entitlement, the options of uh, ways in which people are turning out well and responsibly, um, that actually you get different answers and it creates a different mood in the client. Uh, I think in particular, Dennis and I have talked about that over trainings over many years. Dennis, uh, what else do you see with that? Well, the, the idea that 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 we um, that when you ask a question, it's not um, a completely uh, you know kind of open thing. It really shows a kind of an attitude, and we make assumptions in a question. So, asking you what are you concerned about, for example, says that that my job is to help you reduce your concerns. Whereas, um, if I started by saying what are you doing well, and what are you um, you know what really works in your family, and what are you proud of. Um, we'll, we'll, those two questions uh, are both opener questions, but they, they, they really start a different type of conversation. And I, I think what we're saying is you have to be aware of how much even a, asking someone a question gives them a direction and says, this is what I'm this is what I want to focus on. And this is what's important. There's a whole lot of implications in questioning. And we need to watch our assumptions and learn from them. 
in order to do this. It's not just a, a, a you know kind of a, a asking um, this this question rather than that question. It's really looking at how you approach the client and what kind of a framework, what do you create to deal with the client's anxiety and the concerns that they bring in, creating a safe environment, creating an environment where people feel um, that they're being seen and heard and um, where there's, uh, you know, kind of mutual trust and people are really building the kind of family that they want to build. In a way, the idea that discovery is not an innocuous process that's just about the questions, that if you think about attention like a flashlight or a searchlight, the idea of if you focus it on this, you're going to get more of what you're paying attention to versus if you focus it on that, strengths or purpose or other things, you're going to get more of that. But what we're talking about is adding in another element, which is focusing the flashlight on the advisor and saying, wait a minute, be careful of the biases that might be creeping in through your questioning or what you're doing. Um, If the client says, I don't want my kids to become trust fund babies, and the advisor says, yeah, yeah, I've seen so many trust fund babies, it's horrible. We got to make sure your family doesn't go down that route. That's not an innocuous comment by the advisor. It has impact. It, it's validating and, and confirming to the client, I agree with you, and we definitely got to make sure to head off that disaster. Um, and so a lot of the book is to get advisors to really understand themselves and to pay attention to what they say, what they think, the attitudes that they bring to the table, and how to make those be optimal when working with clients and client families. Yeah, and from what we've spoken about already and from reading the book and understanding um, as much as uh, I can do at this stage around Wealth 3.0, what you're looking at or what's the kind of shift that needs to happen is in some cases there's subtle nuances that need to be shifted around Sort of questioning and, and bias, but in other ways, it's a, a kind of um, field-wide change that's being uh, sought as well. And so I can kind of understand it and, and see the benefits of doing it, but it, it in some respects feels quite big and, and requires a lot of input from a lot of different parties. So if I was a, an advisor that was listening to this and thinking, yeah, this is fantastic, I agree with, with what's being done, but how do I as an individual go and help implement and change this. What are examples or ways? I mean, we've heard of of, uh, Kristen's role in in helping to implement that within the firm that uh, she's involved in. But but are there other ways that firms have been doing this and implementing what you've been um, sort of suggesting um, through Wealth 3.0? Well, I would say that that one thing um, that I, that I can add is that that um, a lot of um, uh, advisors have been trained to be experts and to do things for the family. And what um, good advisors really do is they get the family involved, not just one family member, but more family members, which which adds complexity because instead of dealing with one or two people, now you're dealing with a dozen or more. And um, so you're dealing with it with a, um, a whole group of people and you have to get them working together. It's a lot of moving parts. It's a complicated, 
process. It involves listening to differences of opinion, which families don't like to hear. It involves, um, uh, you know, talking about issues that, that they would rather avoid. Um, there's a whole lot of things that happen. But when you do that, the family has a, wow, we can really do this. We are really doing something important. And the family has a sense of empowerment and mastery, not not that they have a good advisor that, that, that really does everything for them, but they've really done learn something and they've really been able to do something. And um, that that's a real shift for a family. Yeah, and I think that also speaks to the point you were making earlier around putting the client at the center of this rather than ourselves as advisors, right? In, in terms of there's probably a degree of vulnerability that is needed uh, and reflection that's needed on us as advisors to go, actually, am I doing the the job I think I'm doing? Because again, it's probably set out with the best intentions, but I can think already of of examples where you've spotted or said things throughout this conversation. I've gone, actually, maybe I need to look at the the way I (laughs) ask that question. So thank you for that. It'd be very useful from my perspective, but but there does need to be that collective vulnerability and, and focus on, the client, whether that's the family or, or individuals, right? That That's part of what this is focusing on as well. Well, you know, Russ, it's funny because I'm going to tweak that a little bit in adding to it. Um, that vulnerability, and in some ways what we have not talked about is the anxiety of the advisor. We talked about the anxiety of the client, but people often underestimate and, and don't know how much time many advisors spend being anxious uh, and and uh, I can remember in one particular training that I did, one advisor really began to speak up. I said he was hesitant to uh, do some active listening, to ask some questions and whatever. And um, uh, we generated a conversation that led to a lot of discussion in the training where I said, what is it that you picture will happen if you make a mistake or, or why are you hesitant? And he said, I really am scared because what I picture is that I'm going to do what you say, what you're asking me to do. I'll I'll ask a question or make a comment like, you know, sounds like you're really worried about that. Mm -hmm. And that the client will sit back, say, you know, be very offended, say, I can't believe that you said that or that you asked that. Um, That's way too private. And the client stands up and says, I'm uh, going to take my money and I'm going to go to another firm and I'm not coming back. This is the image that the advisor had if he made a mistake by saying something a little personal. And so when you talk about vulnerabilities, in some ways, it's about being a little brave, being willing to have a little courage and with training to understand it's okay. You may need to go there, and that some of what you fear is likely not to come true. And that even if a client says, "Well, I don't know if I want to really talk about that," you can say, "Okay, it's not the end of the world. Uh, it's a repairable kind of issue," uh, and to just take a lot of the anxiety that advisors have of straying into new territory on the family capital side and giving them skills and a little courage to say, it's okay, you can go there. And in fact, good things will happen if you do. I, I totally agree with 
with Jim. And I think that for those of us who have, have actively built um, coaching capacity to be in coaching kinds of conversations with clients rather than expert conversations with clients, it starts to feel second nature. And it's good for me to have a beginner's mind and go back to remembering what it felt like to first be in conversations where I was actively holding back from trying to drive it and show how smart I was and instead think about like, what, what am I really hearing right now? And what is my instinct about how I would respond in a, in a very present way? Like that takes an immense amount of trust in yourself to let a conversation unfold like that. And once you've done it a couple of times, you start to realize that the client actually like wakes up into the conversation and is willing to hold just as much of the weight of it as you are, because they are so excited, even if they're also terrified to be in a conversation that where where it's not just a transactional exchange of expertise and the person getting that expertise. Um, so I would say that 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 is a skill that's an important one, a really important one for advisors to continue to build is that 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 coaching skill set, um, that kind of coaching questioning skill set. And another one that I'll just add to the to the sort of toolkit as we we're talking about the idea of like, well, how if an advisor is excited and ready to go, like how do you help them get started? Mm-hmm. I think another concept to hold on to, and it actually ties very closely to what both Jim and Dennis referred to is, is the more that I think as advisors, we can think about using the best of of some of the research in social science on things like how to create psychological safety, right? Like that's a great one that is, that is well-researched. How do you create psychological safety in groups? And there's a lot of stuff Google's done a lot in terms of creating psychological safety in work teams we can port that over and use that with families. And what I have found is that when I intentionally design meetings to create psychological safety at the beginning, the family holds so much more, but like, because now there's a feeling of, of everybody feeling seen, everybody feeling safe. And then, and then their ability to like lean in and have the conversation. So I'm doing less talking I'm doing more weaving together and they're doing more of owning it because they feel safe to bring their full brilliance to the table. And I think that's just another example of the many that we could look at and say, look, we may not have a deep bench of research in our own field yet, but there's so much that we can pull from other disciplines to that we can port over and use effectively to help further what we're trying to do with clients. I think... You ask about, or we're talking about specific examples. Creating psychological safety is really important for the kind of conversations that advisors can encourage families to have. Very often, families are not talking to each other because they're afraid of either what will happen or they're afraid of how it's going to be interpreted. Um, One of the most common things that we find is the elder generation is hesitant to talk about maybe what the younger, the rising generation can expect uh, for financial support in adulthood or other things because they don't want to create entitlement or uh, make promises or other things. So they don't say anything about estate planning or, or, or strategic planning. And the uh, rising gens will not say anything 
we hear this again and again and again because they're afraid of appearing greedy. If they say, well, you know, could we just talk about what is coming ahead and, you know, what can we expect? Uh, are we going to have support for a down payment on a mortgage or whatever? They need to be able to plan their lives. This yeah. is a very legitimate question. But for an elder who says, look, don't assume you're entitled to anything. Don't ask about that. Just live your life as if nothing's coming. And the idea that that's actually a really legitimate question to, to just say, can we talk about what the future holds for all of us? I don't need, I, I don't know what I'm going to need, what I should do, but everybody is staying quiet because of fear. And so an advisor who can create trust and safety and facilitate a conversation where people can speak up about those issues afterwards, everybody is so relieved to be able to finally have some clarity on what life will be like. Great. And within the book itself, um, there are lots of suggestions and ideas around how this can be implemented. Um, so I guess that's the first port of call for people who are looking for support or for firms mm -hmm. that are looking for support um, with this. But what else, what other support is out there for individuals or firms who are looking to find out more about uh, World 3.0, the principles we've discussed, uh, and to, to look to implement it within their own uh, organizations? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think that this is, this is what the Ultra High Net Worth uh, Institute is about, is um, really looking at institutions that um, because of, um, you know, compliance or because of the size that they are or something that they get into, um, you know, kind of a fragmented way of presenting these things, even though they want to do it, they find that how do I get deal with the family as, as a integrated unit? How do I bring these things together? And um, there's a real growing edge in the field about how to do that. What is the model? How to charge for it? Um, what what the gap between what clients expect, which is based on their anxiety and what, what you want to provide. And, you know, so that doing it in such a way that you don't lose the client in the process, the, the different levels that clients are willing to go to um, in order to do this kind of work uh, is an issue. And, um, um, you know, differences in, in generations in, in the families and, and, uh, um, and in, in even in, in the institutions. Um, different generations see things differently and want things differently and to begin to, to deal with all that complexity I think that that's the the that's the, the the deeper purpose of the Institute and I think we're moving into a time uh, what we're finding with the book is that it's pulling together a lot of threads from different directions and different you know private uh, uh, companies and firms that have been doing training uh, a shout out to just a few of them. This, this is not a complete list, but 2164 does trainings and talks about group process and family meetings. Uh, Tamarin Learning and Share, Save, Spend are doing financial education. It's beginning to grow. Um, uh, training programs through a variety. Of, uh, they're starting to be new academic programs, like at the University of Denver, uh, the Bailey program that is using a 3.0 approach and the 10 domains as the curriculum. Um, you know, we've had a, actually a lot of interest 
from a variety of organizations and collaborations who are seeing this as a roadmap for the future. So if advisors want to do more with this, uh, seek out whatever training you can get that's high quality to learn some of the skills. Um, keep looking for more over time because I think that that's what you're going to see. Check to make sure that whatever research you're citing, take a look at the research. Make sure that it's solid and that it's well accepted. Um, because for, for a lot of advisors, what we're finding the first step they have to do is they have to get rid of a lot of the stuff from their website and their PowerPoint slides that uh, perpetuate some of the old myths about statistics and things. Um, seek out individual training and coaching for the skills that you want to start to pursue. Um, you know, watch for issues around training leading to credentialing. So I think that uh, just staying alert to uh, some of the initiatives that are really going to start coalescing and coming together. But there's already a variety of initiatives out there that people can capitalize on to build their skills with. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that I, I guess the the final point I would want to make on, on that is like just this reminder that like we're in a consortium of ideas. Like we... Dennis and Jim and I don't think we have a corner on like exactly how it should go and all the right ideas for this, right? It's like the invitation is here for us as a collection of engaged, heartful professionals to co-create and bring good ideas to the table. What's working? What's not working? Where, where do we need to turn up, you know, these dials and, and build skills and how, how are people using things like character strengths and um, psychological safety and those kinds of things? Like, how are they using them effectively and how can we learn from what other people are doing? So I think that's just like the broad invitation to, we, we are going to build this together with a lot of smart brains who really care about doing this work well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fantastic. And um, I think listening to this and reading the book is a great way to um, start that. And so uh, firstly, congratulations on the book and the, and the work that you're doing. Thank you for your time on this podcast. Um, Jim Grubman, Dennis Jaffe and Kristen Keffler. Um, thank you very much for your time and your input. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Russ, for having us. Yeah, thanks, Russ. So a huge thank you to Jim, Dennis and Kristen for their time on this episode. As I mentioned at the introduction of the show, this is a collaborative podcast with the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. And I highly recommend you check out their website, which is uhnwinstitute.org. You can find out about all the great work they are doing there and get involved and inquire about membership if that's something that you are keen to explore. Also, keep your ears and eyes open for that Ultra High Net Worth Institute podcast, which is coming soon. Until next time, take care.